0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com/webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page.
1: Hello, this is Amanda Welch, welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio web seminar which today is sponsored by Leica Biosystems. Leica Biosystems develops and manufactures microscopes and scientific instruments for the analysis of microstructures and nanostructures. Widely recognized for optical precision and in innovative technology, the company is one of the market leaders in compound and stereo microscopy, digital microscopy, confocal laser scanning and super-resolution microscopy with related imaging systems. Electron Microscopy Sample pre- Preparation, and Surgical Microscopy. Today's presentation is titled, Using Fit Probes in Super-Resolution Microscopy to Decipher Steps of MRMP Assembly and Developing Oocytes, and is being presented by Dr. Imre Gaspar of the Developmental Biology Unit at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg, Germany. Imre studied medicine in Sesgad, Cesc- Hungary and subsequently did his PhD there studying the importance of a maternally provided alpha-tubulin isoform during Drosophila co- and embryogenesis. He joined the Afrasi lab, or group in the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg in 2009 where he has been studying the assembly of transport competent RMPs and the specific regulation of microtubule-based transport systems that contributes to robustness of the organism. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Emre at the end. So now over to you, Emre, for the presentation.
0: Welcome in the cyber space. Today I'm going to tell you about uh, the technical development uh, of the last uh, two uh, years that we did in order to uh, study or or understand the mRNA assembly, mRNA dynamics, and mRNA biogenesis uh, more profoundly, using developing uh, oocytes as a model system. As most of you may already know, mRNAs or RNAs in general are essential intermediates in the gene expression pathway, because directly or indirectly, most of them will eventually contribute to protein synthesis and these RNA molecules never work alone. They are accompanied from the birth to the death with different uh, protein molecules, which guide them through these different steps of RNA biogenesis. Recent studies from the Henze and the Lantala group showed that actually eight to 10 percentage of the expressed uh, proteins are capable of directly uh, binding to RNA molecules, indicating that this is an enormously uh, present process. And obviously uh, biochemistry uh, contributed the most to to, to this understanding, because these uh, complexes can be studied best in vitro. However, there is a, a aspect of mRNA biology that clearly depends on microscopy, and that is mRNA localization. About three decades ago, it has been noted that some messenger RNAs, such as the beta-actin mRNA in uh, moving in migrating fibroblast, localizes to the leading edge of these cells, where it gives rise to a locally concentrated beta-actin protein, that is uh, the building block for microfilaments, which drive the migration of this cell forward. So in other words, a cell can achieve polarization and polar functionalization just by localizing a handful of messenger RNA molecules, which are then locally translated, and therefore uh, give rise to a local concentration of protein molecules. Moreover, if these protein molecules can be toxic being expressed anywhere else in the cell, such as if these are morphogens that this, uh, determine the polarization of the cell, it would be uh, lethal for the cell if these protein molecules would appear anywhere else but where they needed, so the cell can translationally silence these messenger RNA molecules, making sure that the protein molecules is only expressed where it's uh, required. And this phenomenon has been shown in different systems, such as in simple uh, unicellular organisms, such as the budding yeast, where H1 mRNA localizes to the budding tip the cell but also to uh, more complex systems such as developing oocytes or developing embryos or in the mammalian neurons where the same beta-actin mRNA also localizes to uh, both axons and to dendrites and not only in these complex eukaryotic systems but also in very simple or sim- uh, considered to be simple systems such as bacteria it's been shown that some messenger RNAs localize uh, asymmetrically or uh, non-uniformly within the cell. And obviously it has some sort of similar functionality than in these uh, higher systems. And <coughs> just to focus on, on this part of the slide, large fraction of all the studies mRNAs actually were shown to have some sort of a non-uniform distribution inside the cell, indicating that this is not just a sporadic, but uh, it's a a more general phenomenon that applies to vast majority of mRNAs expressed in a cell. Obviously, in large cells, this mRNA localization needs to have some active components, which can be the transport and also the anchoring of the mRNA to a given uh, place. And transport usually happens along cytoskeletal elements, such as microtubules, with the help of uh, microtubule-mediated motor molecules, kinesine, uh, kinesines and dynein, And this is uh, the process that we study in the lab. So, And the model system that we have chosen to do uh, so is the drosophila oocyte. And just to introduce you the this system, because it's somewhat different from mammalian oogenesis, the common feature is that there is a growing oocyte that eventually becomes an egg, which is fertilized and becomes an embryo, and this is surrounded by a set of nutrient nutritive cells that <coughs> help the oocyte grow and by synthesizing lots of factors that, is, that are necessary for the oocyte to grow. The peculiarity of this system is that inside the follicle, that is surrounded by a, a layer of somatic follicle uh, cells, you find 16 germ cells, one of them becomes the oocyte, starts meiosis and therefore becomes transcriptionally f- silent, and the other 15 remains connected to this one cell, either directly or indirectly, and these cells become nerve cells, which synthesize all the RNA and all the protein molecules, or almost all, that are necessary for oogenesis. These RNA molecules are transported into uh, the oocyte and later on during oogenesis, they get sorted out and localized to their uh, appropriate position, either to the anterior or to the posterior of the oocyte. And also, uh, just to give you an idea of what this system looks like in, in the perspective of a microscopist, these cells can become really huge with the mature egg being half a millimeter long this this cell is already halfway in the process and the other thing that is makes it challenging in terms of microscopy is that beyond that is surrounded by a, a follicular layer which is not transpa- not fully transparent there are lots of autofluorescent and scattering particles inside the ooplasm and that is called the yolk, these nutritive uh, vesicles that swirl around in the oocyte. Nevertheless, this system has been successfully used to study uh, mRNA localization. And just this year, uh, a study came out showing that there are plenty of different uh, patterns that can be observed for RNA localization, including localization of RNAs into the nuclei or around the nuclei uh, to... uh, RNA localizing within the oocyte, either to the posterior or to the anterior uh, cortex of this oocyte. And just to give you some numbers, it's been shown that roughly one third of all the analyzed RNAs have some sort of non ubiquitous localization pattern. Many of them uh, has a distinct subcellular pattern either at the anterior or at the posterior. So with this, I would like to introduce you our model system, which is OSCAR mRNA. This mRNA, just as all the other RNAs, is transcribed inside the nerve cell nuclei, and you may see the transcriptional uh, spots by these bright bright spots, and then this mRNA is exported outside into the nerve cell cytoplasm, where it travels through these cytoplasmic uh, connections Eventually into the oocyte, and within the oocyte, it localizes to the posterior pole. So from the anterior, it gradually disappears and gets to the posterior. And during this localization process, you can see that these MRMPs are very dynamic. They actually travel along microtubules with the help of uh, cytoplasmic dynein and kinesin one And this kinesin one motility becomes really amplified, and the uh, RNA gets close to the posterior. So obviously if you wanna study RNA localization, you need tools to do so. And one of the ways you can study RNA localization is doing fluorescent in-situ hybridization, either the conventional or the more modern single molecule uh, fish techniques. And if you wanna see uh, study RNA uh, b- uh, dynamics, then you need to apply some of the in vivo uh, techniques. Conventional fish is based on a synthesis of a single-stranded oligonucleotide or nucleic acid that is complementary to the target RNA and carries some label. This probe can be labeled by either direct fluorescence or by a haptin that is recognized by uh, antibodies, which are then detected by secondary antibodies or by an enzyme-mediated signal amplification step. This makes this technique sensitive and also it ensures that the technique can detect Endogenous mRNAs that are expressed by the cell. The <coughs> cons of this technique is that it requires fixation and permeabilization of the specimen in order to deliver all these macromolecules. Conventional fish, on top of it, has an uh, issue with labeling density because the label is de- deployed stochastically, therefore making quantification really difficult. And also, it's a, it's a relatively slow technique. Sometimes this can take days until uh, you get an image. And also suffers from a specificity issues. It's not easy to distinguish a probe molecule that is binding a target versus a probe molecule that is just a specifically stucking uh, inside the specimen. And obviously, this is not an in vivo technique. To get in vivo, <coughs> the most commonly used uh, technique is. Uh, borrowed from bacteriophages. These phages have specific RNA structures that can be inserted into the target RNA. And these uh, specific RNA structures have their specific binding partner, usually in the capsid of the uh, phage. These proteins can be fused to a fluorescent protein. And this binary system, when fully assembled, can decorate the RNA of interest with lots of fluorophores. Usually this decoration takes place inside the nucleus, making sure that there are no free uh, G, uh, fluorescent molecules in the cytoplasm, except the ones that are exported by the mRNA. Therefore, ensuring that the signal you detect uh, is uh, mostly labeling uh, co- corresponding to the mRNA. The advantages of this method, obviously, that is an in vivo assay. This is rapid. As soon as you have the specimen uh, ready, you can image it but it obviously requires transgenesis to introduce these both uh, elements, these two elements that are required. And you modify the target mRNA and you actually uh, deploy a 1.52 uh, megadalton-like structure that may interfere with the proper RNA-RMP f- function. And there are uh, evidence that this happens. And also this can have off-specificity issues. Sometimes these uh, MCP uh, These these, uh, cold protein uh, fluorescent uh, molecules, uh, they just create aggregates that somehow get into the uh, cytoplasm and uh, they behave just like RMP molecules would. So to combine the advantages of the two methods, uh, there has been uh, plenty of uh, um, assays proposed in the past. And that is to create target responsive probes probes that wouldn't, wouldn't fluoresce uh, without associating to the target, but upon hybridization, they regain uh, their fluorescence. And there are many flavors of this. Most of them work on this uh, classical scheme of target hybridization, such as molecular beacons, echo and fit tropes, and some of them uh, work on uh, an, a small molecule to an rna optimal interaction that is, uh, uh, induces fluorescence of the small molecule. And <coughs> we have chosen this FIT probe application. We started a collaboration with uh, two excellent colleagues in Berlin, and the, with the group of Oliver Sides, uh, and with the help of uh, Felix Hervelmann, a graduate student at that time, we basically uh, make use of this uh, forced intercalation of TO probes to study uh, RNA biogenesis, in living ovocytes. The principle is the following. Thiazol orange is a DNA intercalating dye, and as most of these dyes, this is not fluorescent when it's when in solution, because the excited energy can get lost easily uh, from uh, intramolecular rotations. But once it gets, gets intercalated, these intramolecular, inter, intramolecular rotations are blocked, and therefore uh, the only way to get rid of the excited energy is through fluorescence. And this dye can be used as a base surrogate in an oligonucleotide. One of the bases can be replaced by this dye. And in a single-stranded state, this dye would not fluoresce, just as in the solution. However, when this oligonucleotide hybridizes to the target, the forming uh, interactions on both sides of TO create an a moiety or an environment that is very similar to intercalation, preventing a uh, tisal orange from, this rotation, from doing these rotations and therefore giving rise to fluorescence. And this fluorescence is obviously very sensitive to mismatches, especially right next to uh, uh, the TO um, uh, base surrogate and can these uh, mismatches can easily quench the fluorescence. So our expectations to these fit probes were the following, that it should work in vivo and therefore detect endogenous mRNA. It should have reduced or ultimately no specificity because of this fluorogenic property. And obviously we don't want to have any interference with the mRMPs that we want uh, to study. And Just to give you an an introduction, so this is how the system works in a test tube. So once you have, when you have no target, you essentially get no fluorescence, and once you give the corresponding target, you get a fluorescence increase. And the the increase determines uh, the responsiveness or the contrast of this probe. And the other property that you can measure is how bright it is, essentially how many photons you get out. as you compare it to a GFP molecule, which would have roughly 34 uh, on this scale, uh, these probes are not really bright. You can walk through this TO on this nucleotide sequence, but essentially it never grows above 10. So to fix this issue, we want we uh, set out to look for uh, brighter fit probes. Obviously, uh, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention, but these probes by themselves are good enough to ma- uh, to carry out wash-free fish. So essentially, just fix the specimen, add the probe, and detect the mRNA without having to uh, uh, do any washes that usually make it free. And this is a prerequisite for a probe to work in vivo, where you cannot apply any washes anyway. However, the contrast is not really great, especially when used in a normal, conventional wide-field microscope. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So, but as I said, our aim was to make these probes brighter. Obviously, one way to make to get brighter signal is to uh, synthesize more probes per target but then we'll have an increased risk of interfering with an in vivo target because we don't know what an actual segment of mRNA mm-hmm. is doing in vivo. So the other idea was then to use just a limited number of probes, but use m- multiple dyes per probe. But for physical reasons, this didn't work. So introducing two TOs and walking them along the same nucleotide sequence didn't uh, yield a significant increase in brightness. There was an about 20-30 percentage increase, but this is not what one would uh, expect from uh, two dyes versus one dye. And this is because the two dyes are simply too close to each other and they engage into excitronic uh, interactions, essentially stealing each other's uh, energy. So, the other alternative was to find different dyes that would behave similarly, but would be brighter. And there is another dye from the Thysol orange family called Oxazolopyridine, or JO, that is brighter, as you may see on the, on the graph. It has much bigger uh, peak here, so it, it is definitely brighter. Unfortunately, its responsiveness is not as cute as of TO. So it is bri- it's relatively bright, even in a single stranded state, making it a not so ideal dye for uh, in vivo applications. However, oxazolopyridine is slightly redshifted compared to teal, and we could make use of this by introducing a thiazol orange into the same probe, because then we managed to combine the two uh, <coughs> positive features, of these uh, two labels. We got bright, even brighter probes than with J-O alone, which preserve the responsiveness of uh, thiazol orange. And this is because in a single-stranded state, T-O engages into uh, an excitronic interaction with J-O. Essentially, it quenches the single-stranded fluorescence. However, because of this uh, redshifted spectrum, in the hybrid, when T-O is fluorescing or basically uh, is restricted to a fluorescence, like energy uh, release it engages into energy transfer to JO essentially uh, providing its energy to JO and therefore boosting JO's <coughs> fluorescence and using this dual label probe yielded actually much brighter probes which work now not only well in a confocal microscopy, but also in a wide-field fluorescent microscopy, as you compare it to a TO alone probe. And here in the middle, you see just JO, which has a very high uh, fluorescence, even in a single-stranded state, such as in solution. But the problem with these probes is that they are based on DNA. So the backbone is DNA. And obviously, when you try to use them in vivo, they disappear so if we inject these probes into a living cell we can detect the signal very weakly at the posterior but this signal is essentially lost within an hour this is because a DNA-RNA hybrid is not stable there are many RNAs that make sure that uh, these uh, specimens never exist in a living cell we could trick these RNAs by using uh, modifications of the backbone such as an RNA uh, backbone where the 2 o prime is methylated and these RNA-RNA hybrids are no longer recognized by uh, endogenous uh, nucleases. So here as you may see the signal uh, persisted much longer and actually we saw no decay and you may see that the oocyte was actually alive because it grew within the 60 minutes without so this didn't harm uh, viability of the cells. However, what we wanted to see is motility of these RMPs. And actually, this is just a time projection to show you what we should be seeing, these streaks of RMPs moving, as we saw with the oscems 2 system. However, we never observed uh, those streaks with using the 2O' methylated uh, fit probes. And that is, just to cut the long story short, because we realized that one of the probes was interfering with the target and actually uh, was not stable enough. And this is something we wanted to avoid. So we looked for other means to uh, confer RNA stability. And another way (coughs) is to introduce uh, locked nucleic acids into the backbone, where basically this 2O' is locked to the 4' carbon atom inside the the, mm, sugar base. So we came up with a mixmer design where a 2 prime methylated backbone was supplemented with just a single log nucleic acid right next to the TO dye. And this turned out to be instrumental because it not only confirmed re- nuclease resistant, but because log nucleic acids were shown to reduce the stacking distance between adjacent bases, it actually had a great impact on TO fluorescence by restricting its intramolecular torsions. So if you compare a DNA fit probe to its equivalent lna modified probe, you may see that the brightness roughly doubles or even uh, grow uh, larger. Of course, the, the brightness uh, gr- increased in the single-stranded state. However, the responsiveness, so the, the ratio of these two fluorescence remained constant between a DNA and, a fit pr- uh, and an LNA-modified fit probe. So just to summarize, it increased the brightness, but not affected uh, responsiveness if we introduced a single-lock nucleic acid. And with that, we could now visualize in vivo the endogenous Oscar RNAs that are essentially doing the same thing as we saw with uh, the Oskar system. They formed particles that were moving and you may capture uh, some of these movements by eye. For instance, there's one here. We want, Because there was such a benchmark available, we wanted to compare it to the OSC-MS2 system. And luckily the fluorescence is <coughs> different enough, so we could co-label RNAs with the GFP and with uh, fit probes. And we could see that essentially the two signals correlate very well, and we could capture the same moving RNAs with both of the channels. Not only that, but the qualitative picture that we got, now focusing on the oscar motility, we saw that it's essentially the same. So if we don't inject, and we observed Oscar arnie with ms 2 we see uh, displacement, and that was the same as if we injected the FIT probe. So these didn't affect uh, the displacements, neither did it affect uh, the fraction of moving particles. However, when we injected another probe, we saw actually a great reduction in both displacement and the mo- fraction of moving particles. And this was because of a targeted interference with RNA function. So we knew from our previous studies that OSCAR mRNAs has a localization element that is created upon splicing from these 8 and 10 nucleotides flanking the first intron and then this forms an RNA structure that looks somewhat like this, with a long stem at the base. And this stem is important to maintain motility of the RNAs. If you disrupt this stem by any means, the motility of the RNAs should uh, be lost or should be reduced. And therefore we designed this OS6 probe to target this sequence. And actually with that, we could show just what I uh, referred you is that Essentially, all these long uh, mortalities were completely or almost completely absent when we injected this probe, and not when we injected uh, uh, a control probe. Obviously, uh, a single probe alone was not bright enough to uh, to visualize RMPs, individual RMPs. We could just see this posterior accumulation, indicating that the probe managed to hybridize but we need to apply the OSCMS to m system, in this, uh, in this case, to, to follow uh, uh, RMP motility. Nevertheless, this is uh, bringing me to the next uh, topic, because here we can use this probe, we, we show that we can use these probes not only to visualize RNAs, but to make important discoveries about the RNA function. And the other thing that we are interested in is, is that RMP composition, how does that change? for a given uh, RNA, and as I referred in the beginning, this is mostly a work of a biochemist, but unfortunately in a complex system such as ours, where everything happens within one unit, including the transcription of the mRNA and the association of proteins in the nucleus, then the export of these transport competent RNAs into the cytoplasm where they acquire all the uh, things that makes them able to walk along microtubules. Then the transport into the O site and essential eventually to the, the, the transport to the posterior pole and then the localized translation, it all happens within one uh, thing, one unit that you cannot subdivide, at least not by conventional uh, extraction techniques. and. It's needless to say that the RNP composition, in terms of what proteins are associating to this RNA, changes dramatically during these steps. So we need some sort of uh, way or methods that could uh, help us deciphering MRNP composition in place. And there has been such methods proposed earlier. They were based on uh, in-situ hybridization performed on uh, electromicroscopic sections that you can do. So you can apply probes to thin sections and you can detect these probes by using small gold particles coupled to uh, antibodies that recognize the hapten (coughs) incorporated into the probe. And by that, you can detect an RMP and you can detect a protein molecule such as dynane heavy chain with a different size gold particles, and you can then get cre- uh, uh, ask questions about how the uh, RMP composition changes in different uh, uh, compartments of this of this large uh, follicle. But obviously, as you may uh, see from these images, it requires a lot of expertise to be able to carry out these things. And <coughs> The other thing that is uh, obvious that although this is a huge RMP that should contain many RNA molecules, probably, there are only four label molecules, or maybe just two, that are labelling that this is an RMP. And therefore drawing the outlines of this RNA uh, requires a great skill, which is not, uh, uh, which makes these uh, techniques difficult to apply uh, in any labs. So, to find an alternative way, we wanted to use uh, 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 our probes and eventually in a super-resolution system where we could get similar pictures but with less uh, stochasticity and with uh, more quantitative. So, therefore, we tried a number of uh, super-resolution methods but eventually what worked in our system was uh, stimulated emission depletion where you essentially uh, shape the point spread function of uh, the excited beam by using a second beam that, is f- that forms a donut which stimulates the emission of fluorescence of the uh, molecules that are uh, underneath, that are excited by the excitation laser, eventually leaving a much smaller point spread function which is then detected by the microscope. Obviously, we needed to check if these probes are good uh, for STED microscopy. And for commercial uh, uh, STED microscopes, such as what Leica offers, the depletion lasers just match the emission of our probes. 592 nanometer depletion works very good, but also 660 nanometer works marginally. And just to show you what it looks like, in a confocal mode, without doing any deconvolution, you can obtain much crisper images by using either continuous wave stead, or even further you can further uh, improve resolution by using gated stead, and the 590 nanometer depletion. But the same thing you can uh, uh, obtain if you use the 660 nanometer depletion laser, <coughs> and there is uh, roughly two to three-fold uh, uh, increase. Uh, of lateral resolution, which is what we want to have uh, initially. Obviously, the true power of STED is uh, harvested when we apply deconvolution. So there, you you can really appreciate the striking difference of a normal confocal and the STED microscopy in terms of how much more detail you can observe in these images. So just cut this uh, long story short these probes, especially the l probes, turned out to be excellent substrates for STED microscopy. But obviously we needed to find some means to detect our protein molecules of interest that might be uh, uh, (coughs) important components of OSCAR MRMPs. And one of such protein molecules is Staufen, an RNA binding protein that is a bona fide marker for OSCAR RNA. So what we did, We did a fit probe uh, based in-situ and the Stauffen staining and tried doing confocal imaging and stead imaging. As you may see, Stauffen uh, nicely stains the posterior pole where Oscar accumulates and this can be resolved very well in a confocal. However, especially if we zoom in, but you can also appreciate that the signal from our fit probe is very poor. It can be seen, but it's certainly not good enough to, uh, to do any sort of uh, uh, image analysis later on. And the reason for this is that the antibodies that we need to use and the bulking solutions that we, uh, that we need to use, more, specific, more importantly the antibodies, they are never RNA-free. And although they cannot uh, harm our probes, but eventually they will lead to the degradation of the target mRNA and then the signal is lost. So this turned out to be not uh, a way to walk. But instead we uh, turn our attention to GFP because there are plenty of uh, these uh, uh, potential uh, RMP uh, components, proteins, that are tagged with GFP. And the GFP fluorescence, as I just showed you uh, before, is sufficiently different from a TO to be imaged simultaneously within the same specimen. So if we excited GFP with a 470 nanometer laser and just detected this portion of its emission, and parallelly we excited TO with 525 nanometer, which doesn't excite GFP at all and detected this portion of the of its fluorescence. We could still use the 592 nanometer laser to basically co-deplete both GFP and TO and get super-resolution images of GFP out of fluorescence and of the FIT probes. Just to uh, show you, essentially, we could see no crosstalk using these settings between the two uh, labels between GFP and TO. So these images show. Uh, TO fluorescence in the GFP channel and GFP fluorescence in the TO channel with the same uh, lookup table. And if we boost the signal like 10 fold then we start to see something that resembles the other channel, indicating that there is a quite good separation of the signal and essentially there is no crosstalk. And if we do co-visualization now, we can essentially get STAD microscopy on GFP autofluorescence and on the fit probes labeling OSCAR. So in this experiment, we did an obvious uh, control where we (laughs) expressed the OSCMS to uh, GFPs and we did an OSCAR staining. And as you may see, most of the spots, they carry both of the labels. They might carry it with different intensities. And if we zoom in, you can appreciate the improvement of resolution what we achieved with, with the STEM microscopy especially if we focus on some particles things that <laughs> appear originally just one blob there you can resolve that actually they are somewhat distinct and there is some uh, distance between them and this is no surprising because the MS2 loops are clustered in the 3' UTR of, of the mRNA whereas our probes mainly label uh, the coding sequence. And an RNA molecule uh, of of 1000 nucleotides was shown to span around 300 nanometers when it stretched fully linear, so there is no surprise that uh, different sequences of the mRNA are (coughs) occupying different space that can be resolved with super-resolution microscopy. Also, you can resolve some features particles that would appear as one like here they actually can be resolved to be more than just one using super resolution microscopy and then it's just a matter of computational power to turn these images into objects and then ask at the computer what is the colocalization of these objects to each other and essentially come up with graphs where, with an increasing colocalization, increasing size of the colocalization window, we can detect that more and more uh, particles co-localize with the other color, which eventually uh, plateaus off at some level, indicating that uh, there is no perfect correlation, which stems from technical issues, obviously, and also from the biology, like that in this system, Not all mRNAs are labeled with, not all Oscar mRNAs are labeled with Oscar MS10. So there are just RNAs that are recognized by the FIT probe, but not GFP. The other way around is more difficult to explain. It's more more like just technical. But more importantly, uh, if you compare uh, a similar measurement between confocal instead, but you may realize that, well, two things. You get Similar profiles of colocalization, although it's somewhat different, and we may argue which one is more close to reality. But I think that the more features you can extract from an image, the better you uh, get, uh, the closer you get to the ultimate truth, indicating that not that many uh, colocalizations take place within just fifty nanometer, but actually the two probes uh, are a bit more separated then it's indicated by the, by the confocal imaging. And this is uh, what I just showed you in an, uh, an image. Obviously, this is biologically not so important. Biologically, it would be more relevant to test other proteins, which will come soon. We are about uh, to, to, to publish this and you can just check it out uh, once the paper, I- paper is accepted. And just for a teaser, also a story that is uh, currently being reviewed, we can detect not only a single RNA uh, species with these filters, but using different color versions we can detect different RNAs obviously Oscar RNA in this case and also just polyadenylated RNA with the other color with magenta <coughs> just showing that you can uh, achieve a similar resolution with uh, the two uh, different colors and uh, because these are actually uh, mm, founders of uh, protein of molecule families, there are multiple different color versions that may or may not work for microscopy as good as uh, thiazol orange and the other dye. But nevertheless, you have the option to uh, detect multiple uh, mRNA species simultaneously, even with super resolution. And all these things that I just told you about are uh, summarized on this slide. So. I hope that I could convince you that fit probes <coughs> are one of the Swiss army knives of studying mRNA uh, uh, biology, because they can not only uh, detect localization of mRNA, but they can also report dynamics using in vivo uh, imaging. Also, they can uh, help discovering functional elements between the mRNA, uh, just as I showed you, and also they are good to uh, resolve a uh, MRMP composition in situ in combination with GFP tagged uh, protein molecules. And all my talk, or the essence of it, is summarized now on Science Lab at Leica. So if you have any further questions, you can refer to this page as well. And this page is going to be uh, expanded as more and more applications of these fit tropes, such as the multicolor imaging, are going to be published. And with that, I'm at my last but most important slide with the acknowledgement. I have to thank, uh, well, I'm thanking uh, my supervisor and who provided me the opportunity to work with this excellent system. And also our collaborators, Oliver Zeitz and Felix Silverman who supplied us with an infinite number of these and different versions of these probes. And also I took uh, great advantage of our advanced light microscopy facility in collaboration with Leica, who provided most of the equipment that I used, and also for Ember. and thank you for your attention.
1: So thanks Emre, that was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So for our first question is um, about, the polarity of the related mRNA. So this is from Mikhail, and he asks, are polarity-related mRNA translated in the rough ER or free ribosomes?
0: That is an excellent question. As far as we understand, uh, the uh, rare extends all the way up to the, the posterior pole, so very likely it is translated on ER but according to uh, microscopic images that we did this, uh, these cells are also full with freely full floating non-membrane associated or non-obviously membrane associated ribosomes so translation could take place at both locations there has been a recent study on uh, the translation of uh, GULCAN and bicoid RNA from the lab of Ilan Davis and Catherine uh, Rappwood where they actually showed that uh, translation of of glucan RNA already takes place within the oocyte and that happens on the surface of uh, processing bodies, which is a quite surprising finding because processing bodies uh, are usually considered as uh, storage place and eventually decay place for uh, for, uh, non-translated mRNA molecules.
1: Yes, and then he has a follow-up question about um, how much of the uneven RNA distribution comes from active RNA movement versus space-selective RNA destruction?
0: I think it uh, depends on the RNA species uh, that, uh, that, we, uh, that that you consider. Because, for instance, uh, OSCA mRNA that we study, it almost exclusively localizes via uh, uh, active transport at least during mid oogenesis, and later during oogenesis there is a a selective encoding process so there the mRNA is not transported actively, it just uh, diffuses in the oplasm but then it's captured by actually by Oscar protein itself, uh, many other RNAs but for instance in Drosophila embryos uh, there uh, there are uh, studies on for instance Hsp83 mRNA where uh, there is just a selective uh, protection from degradation that causes the localization. So it it varies from RNA to RNA.
1: Well that makes a lot of sense. Um, So now I have a question from Stefan and he's asking does the system also work in the early Drosophila embryo?
0: We just, I I just started to do uh, some some fish uh, imaging on that, so just uh, on on fixed uh, embryos? Yes, it does. Although drosophila embryos are not uh, the best uh, system for OSCA mRNA because there the mRNA starts to get degraded but one can detect uh, uh, with the fit props. Uh, We didn't uh, do any live cell imaging yet. We haven't done any live cell imaging yet yet on living embryos. Uh, It's because the OSCA mRNA is not uh, localizing anymore. So there is nothing interesting to be seen and currently we are not studying any other mRNA, uh, just OSCAR mRNA.
1: Okay, well it looks like great minds think alike with that. Um, And so I have another question about the minimum number of FIT probes that you need to um, detect RNA.
0: Yes, so depending on the application, the very minimum number is one. So, with one, we could already detect at least uh, this cross uh, patterns of RNA localization, but obviously, there the sensitivity is not even at a single MRMP uh, level. Mm-hmm. Usually, we use a combination of three to five, sometimes six uh, fit drops, and there we are at uh, a single uh, MRMP resol- resolution. And the reason why I say MRMP and not mRNA is that. Uh, not so long, not so, such a long time ago, there was a publication from the laboratory of uh, Eric wishhaus and Liz Gabbies, they showed that oscar mRNA uh, is found in MRMPs that contain at least two mRNA molecules.
1: Okay. And then I also have a question about um, where can you get these FIT probes from?
0: Uh, so I just saw uh, our collaborators uh, home page, uh, web page uh, shown up so basically okay. these probes are uh, exclusive, uh, 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 are synthesized by the Zeitz lab exclusively so at the moment there is no uh, commercial uh, availability but that is going to be launched soon so if anyone else is interested in if anyone is interested in uh, trying out these uh, probes in their system they should contact Oliver Zeitz and uh, he's always open for collaborations
1: that's fantastic. That's one of the best things about science is the possibility for all the collaborations. All right, and then I, I have maybe. a, and then I have a question that follows up. Um, so we, I asked you about the minimum number of FIT probes that you need. What is the maximum sensitivity and the minimum number of molecul- molecules that you can resolve with the FIT probes?
0: Yeah, as I just mentioned in, in, my, in my answer, so we don't. No yet actually, actually, um, but we can detect uh, MRMPs already in the nerve cells where it has been shown that uh, these MRMPs contain two uh, OSCAR mRNA molecules. So, what what we can say for sure that two RNA molecules per uh, voxel we can detect. If we can really detect one, well probably not with only five probes because this has been shown uh, also for single merkle fish that you need uh, more, at least the double of it. Or maybe even more. But since most of these applications are done anyway in fixed uh, specimens, so just putting in more fit probes wouldn't be a problem, provided that you have them ready.
1: Okay, and then I have a question from Saham Is there a recommended reference book or some sort of reference material?
0: Uh, of this fit, probes and of of all these RNA labeling techniques Mm -hmm. Uh, actually we published a a review paper uh, early this year. It's uh, in really interdisciplinary science and I can uh, share you the link Provided I find it, just give me a second. Okay. It's freely available.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. And let's see, okay, and you mentioned that you started working on this um, a bit in Drosophila. Are there any other model systems or other RNAs that you've started looking at besides what you've mentioned?
0: We started exploring um, other model systems, such as the zebrafish whole side embryo, also looking for uh, localized uh, mRNAs. But we are only at the very beginning of this process, and we actually started facing uh, a completely new set of technical problems that are not present in Drosophila. But since we are not, uh, fortunately, here in campus we have excellent, we have great labs that uh, use zebrafish as a model system so they can they provide us with a lot of help but yes there are some issues that we have to overcome before uh before that can be used in in, in these systems. And it has to do mainly with uh with microscopic uh issues like uh, such as autofluorescence and uh specificity and things like that. But we are working on it.
1: Okay. Yeah. These things always take some optimization. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thanks again, Emre, for a very illuminating presentation and, <clears throat> and a great discussion. Thanks also to our sponsor, Leica, And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminar's page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Leica and Bite Size Bio.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy to access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.